Welcome to Twelve, the Week in Health Law, the Iowa Farm Bureau Healthcare Podcast of Record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April the 9th, twenty eighteen. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host, who once again has been offered a full ride to twenty universities, including four Ivy League schools, and that's because he is Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And dear friends, just a quick reminder. If you've got a moment to get onto iTunes and rate the show or leave a review or a comment, uh, that's always really helpful. And if you've got some uh, spare cash as your tax refunds come in, if you go to twill.com, you could always support us through our patron page or buy some of our increasingly ridiculously priced merch. This week, we have a, uh, a long-delayed delight, which is to welcome Andrew Torrance, the Earl B. Schertz, research professor at the University of Kansas School of Law. A biology PhD, Professor Torrance joined the Kansas faculty in 2005. He teaches and conducts research in patent law, intellectual property, innovation, food and drug regulation, biotechnology law, biodiversity law, bio law, experimental and big data approaches to the law. Welcome to the pod, sir. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Let me start just with a couple of questions about a piece you did with Jevin West. It's called All Patents, Great and Small. And I think, as far as I can tell, what you're suggesting is a sort of a, a Google search-like algorithm that can be used to ferret out the value of patents based on how they reference and link to other patents. If that's roughly what you're talking about, I guess my first question is, why do we need such a valuation scheme? What is it replacing or enhancing? I think that your instinct is right. I think that it's similar in concept to page rank for patents. And that's not the first time I've used that catchphrase. <laughs> I didn't invent it right now. But it's a good way for people to think about it. Um, usually patents have been judged based on all sorts of sort of narrative criteria. What does the patent look like? Um, how does it read? What do the claims look like? How can we interpret it using various canons of interpretation? Other people have tried to use business information. What products does it cover? Um, litigation information. You know, if you've been sued on a patent, the patent is probably worth something because somebody's willing to put money behind it and um, and take it to court. What we decided to do is take a network approach. And patents have a couple of unique features that lend themselves to network approaches. One of them is that patents are cited by and cite other things. There's this concept called prior art in patents, where a patent needs to sit situate itself within the scientific literature and the scientific field that it sees itself in. So a patent on some sort of gene that would um, affect eye color in humans would have to survey the scientific literature in the previous patents on genes that affect human eye color and list those. And then those become part of the process of getting the patent. You have to distinguish your patent over the previous prior art. So you have to cite things in the past, but then as time goes on, after you get your patent, your patent, if you're lucky, gets cited by future technologies, looking back and saying that um, your technology was relevant to whether their technology deserves to be patented. As a consequence, what you end up with is a network built from all of these little citations from patent to patent to patent, and also the scientific literature, web pages, things like that. What we decided to do was to take a network approach to analyzing patents. That in and of itself is not entirely novel. Uh, economists have been doing citation work for years where they link up the citations. Mostly they count the citations. They don't worry about the structure that the citations form in terms of a network. 
The reason for that is that it's it's a very it's a gigantic computational problem to calculate one of these networks. There's a, a famous math problem called the NP complete problem. It's basically the traveling salesman problem. So imagine a traveling salesman who wants to visit four houses in a day. The traveling salesman can probably calculate the optimal route between the four houses and save himself time, money, gasoline, etc. Once the traveling salesman reaches 12, 20, 30 houses, it becomes almost impossible to calculate the best connection between those houses, sort of the optimal network. We're dealing with, um, in the case of the US patent system, nine and a half million patents that are connected by citations. And how do you hook up that network into a sort of an optimal network where everything is where it should be? That's what we've tried to do. So taking the idea of network analytics and applying it to this using a very, very powerful approach that was developed by my, my co-author, Jevin West, and um, his PhD advisor, Carl Bergstrom, and a Swedish gentleman named Martin Rosfall, who is a professor in Sweden. They came up with this very powerful way of linking data together into networks into a pattern that's about as efficient as it's a, as it's possible to calculate. And that's what we had. That's what we did with this study. We we generated a graph of the whole patent system with all of the patents as little nodes connected by links. The links being citations. And then the power of the the approach that um, Jevin and Carl and Martin have come up with is that not all links are equally important. So an example that I like to give is imagine that I had a hundred friends on Facebook, and uh, imagine you and Frank each had a hundred friends on Facebook. Uh, imagine that all of my friends were just friends from my childhood, from the block that I grew up on in Toronto. Whereas your friends were distinguished professors here and there, Nobel Prize winners, heads of state, etc. Well, using traditional methods, 100 equals 100 equals 100, we're all equally important in the network. But actually, I think there's some intuitive strength to the idea that since you folks, in my hypothetical at least, know all kinds of important influential people, you should actually be considered more central to the network than I should. I should sort of be peripheral, whereas you should be central. So that's what we do with our patents. We figure out which patents are central in the network and which ones are peripheral. And there's a lot of math that goes into this. Um, it's very iterative. We do this hundreds of thousands, millions of times to sort of estimate what the what the um, branching pattern looks like and which ones are central and which ones are peripheral. But we end up with a graph of the patent system. And from that graph, we can infer all kinds of interesting information about individual patents, as well as the technology areas that the patents inhabit. So we can tell you what the most important US patent in history was. And that's actually uh, one of Kerry Mullis's patents for PCR, which happens to correspond with some other evidence. The New York Times, for example, said that it was the technology that divided biotech into before and after. So there's an intuitive uh, confirmation that that patent would be super important. That turns out to be the most powerful patent in the US patent um, corpus. Um, there's lots and lots and lots of patents that have almost no importance whatsoever in our system, which is to say nobody's ever noticed them, nobody's ever linked to them, and nobody probably ever will. So when you do that, you can figure out what the most influential inventions have been, and you can actually trace their influence forward through time and see what influences they've had on building fields over time has been. And then you can start to think of how this relates to dollar values. Now that's highly speculative at this point, but what the paper is that we, the paper that we wrote, what it was meant to do was to compare our method, which I've sort of explained in rough terms, compare it to the gold standard methods of judging whether patents are valuable or not, including whether a patent's been litigated. And if 
if so, what level of court it's been litigated in. And what we found was that our data lined up beautifully with previous studies by Lemley, Allison, and others, which showed that if a patent's been litigated, it's much more valuable than a non-litigated patent. And so um, essentially trying to show that our approach is, is plausible. And yet we didn't rely on litigation to build the network. We built it independently. So whatever signal Allison and Lemley and others picked up in the litigation studies, we're also picking up in the network, but independent. I have two quick follow-up questions. One silly, one hopefully a little less silly. The other thing that I immediately thought of after I made my own shallow uh, analogy to um, uh, page ranking was the extent to which you could have gaming here, you know, sort of patent value optimization sort of thing. Um, that That's a great question. The gaming is fascinating. In the traditional method by which economists measure patents value, which is simply to count up the number of citations that, that a patent has received, you can certainly game the system by making sure there's more citations. And this is a game that is played in the US system, especially by patent attorneys such as, you know, such as myself when I practiced, not necessarily consciously, but you have very little time to figure out what prior art you should be citing when you file a patent application. And so often what you do is you file everything in the kitchen sink, a whole bunch of prior art, just to make sure that you're covering everything. There happens to be quite a severe penalty in the US system if you are aware of prior art, which is relevant and material, and you don't file it with the US Patent and Trademark Office. So people tend to overcompensate by providing too much prior art. You could also, knowing the way that economists have traditionally measured patent value, you could decide that um, you want to file 500 pieces of prior art and, and you want to make sure there's all kinds of citations to your work. In our system, in, in the method that we use, which is based on something called the MAP equation, we actually filter that out. And part of the way we filter that out is it's, it's an iterative process where you look for the most influential patents by hypothesis. And then you test again and again and again whether all the sources of information in the network tell the same story. Are they all leading to the conclusion that this is a central patent versus a peripheral patent? If all of the lines of information all agree, then the patent is indeed awarded importance. If there is only some information in the network which suggests importance and other information which suggests that this patent is not really influential or important at all, then the algorithm subtracts importance from that patent. And as a consequence, rather than dealing with raw citations, each citation in the network gets a value. And that value feeds on not just to other patents that it's directly connected to, but feeds all the way through the system to every other patent that it's connected to. Because you're dealing with the entire population of patents, in the US study that we did here, again, nine and a half million, because you're dealing with such a large number of patents, it's actually quite hard, if not impossible, to game the system. You'd have to, it's a little bit like blockchain, you'd have to convince the majority of the nodes, and how you do this, I don't know, because you'd have to do it retroactively. Actively. You have to convince them to show that one particular patent was important or not important. So we actually filter out the effect of gaming in the method that we use. The second question um, I had goes to innovation and, and whether this kind of model that you construct, which is so dependent upon sort of the prior art and prior filings, that maybe it misses the really innovative moonshot kind of piece. Okay, great. Again, really great question. It sounds like you actually read the paper. That's <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, the way that we approach that question, let, let me start by saying um, the structure in the network is just filled with information. And you not only have the position of individual patents, but you also have all of the other patents that are most closely connected.
connected to a patent of interest. And the patents that are most closely connected to a patent of interest, those are the other patents in that area of technology. So what you end up with in the structure of the graph, the graph of the patent system, is clusters of patents, which can be thought of as natural technology groups. Technology groups that haven't been grouped hierarchically from on high by some expert who says, oh, A belongs with B and B belongs with C. But instead, they're grouped together by virtue of the fact that um, the patents surrounding a patent have actually been speaking to each other through citations in such a significant way that they cluster apart into a technology group. Um, what you can see over time is you can see the evolution of technology. So you can calculate these networks over periods of time and see not just how individual patents connect with other patents, but how clusters of patents connect with other clusters. And there's a great example from um, Carl Brookstrom and, and his colleagues where they looked at the scientific literature using very similar method. And they discovered that about 20 years ago, there was really no such thing as neuroscience. But over time, a number of different fields had reached out and started collaborating with one another by citing each other and essentially created the field of neuroscience. And they can show this um, diagrammatically. It's, it's pretty stunning. In 1995, there really was no such field as neuroscience. But by 2004, um, fields like molecular and cell biology, medicine, psychiatry, um, psychology had all started to put out feelers to each other. And the feelers ended up coalescing in a field that we now call neuroscience, a field that quite literally didn't exist in 1995. So what you can do when you're looking at the importance of technologies is you can actually detect uh, very important technologies when they first start to form. I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but in the case of neuroscience, neuroscience was, I mean, neuroscience now is quite an important field. And at the time that it started to form, it was considered fairly radical to think about these ideas in terms of both molecular and cell biology and medicine and psychiatry and neurology and psychology. So you actually saw what ended up being quite a cutting edge field being formed. Um, we don't make, I mean, the, the algorithm doesn't make judgments about the cutting edgeness of a technology other than to detect when it forms, to detect when it starts to aggregate into a cluster, and then to detect how important it is judged by all the other citations in the network that start to give it credibility, that start to credit it with being important. So it may, it may be that we're not, we're not finding, you know, all of the radical inventions immediately, but we certainly do find them as soon as they start to have influence. As soon as they start to have influence, they're right Right there in the network um, revealed for all to see. Well, thank you, Andrew. That's really a very interesting extension of some of the network science analyses of you know, power law distributions and other areas. Uh, I know that um, a few years ago, I think Ryan Whalen, who now teaches at Hong Kong University, um, did a really interesting analysis of law professors on Twitter and sort of analyzed people's network centrality and who is connected to whom, other things like that. It was really fun to look at. And um, I know there's other, uh, other just network analyses that uh, of the Supreme Court case law uh, that I think maybe Dan Katz did. I'm not certain, but I think that this will be a growing uh, area of law. Or did you do it? I hope that you didn't do it and I forgot. No, no, no. <laughs> no Dan Katz did it. I mean, Dan yeah. Katz is, is also one of the pioneers in this field. I am distinctly not a pioneer. The only thing that I pioneer in is finding really, really super collaborators. <laughs> but Dan Katz did this fabulous study of Supreme Court cases and how they connected. And I remember seeing at a conference, I think it was at Vanderbilt built. And it must have been almost a decade ago. He was just a graduate student at Michigan at the time. And, um, you know, we all gave our presentations and then Dan put his presentation up on the, on the board. And not only was it bewildering,
bewilderingly difficult, we could tell, to actually do this science. But it was so, it was so um, revelatory. I mean, it immediately showed you powerful patterns, powerful patterns and ways to think about Supreme Court cases. And for those that haven't, those that aren't familiar with this work, you can see the effect of cases like Marbury v. Madison um, as as they reverberate out through the U.S. legal system over time. And and, um, you can see which cases have had the most influence. You can also see cases that have had very little influence. And that's Dan Katz's work. I mean, he's just, he's a genius. um, And, you know, I'm very much inspired by his work. And I think Jevin um, is sort of a similar, Jevin and Carl Bergstrom and Martin Rosvall, they're a similar sort of caliber to Dan, real pioneers in this field. I'm just lucky that I get to to work with these folks. Yeah, no, and I I think that, you know, thinking further about the nature of scientific innovation and how um, uh, cases generate further cases and how innovations generate further innovations or what, you know, what stops and does not become generative is very interesting. And and I think it's actually a good pivot point to bring us to your work on synthetic biology. Um, I was, I'm friends with, you know, Kathy Strandberg and Mike Madison and Brett Frischman, um, who edited the volume that your most recent work, I think, on synthetic biology appeared in on the Uncommon Commons. And I've been following their effort to use the work of Eleanor Ostrom, a good Indiana professor, uh, to uh, develop ideas about commons and common resources. And I want to get into, you know, especially because it, it matches up so interestingly to some stuff that we talked with George Contreras about a few episodes ago. I want to get into your points on the law and policy of patents uh, in synthetic biology. But before we get into that, could, could you describe for listeners sort of what synthetic biology is and what its main contributions so far have been? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Again, this is a, another one of the subjects that makes me feel like I don't have a real job, but instead I'm just indulging myself in guilty pleasures. Um, I, I started out in biology and it was a painful experience to sort of give that up and turn to the law. <laughs> but nevertheless, I managed to find my way back to dealing with biologists. Um, synthetic biology is, there, there's two ways that I think about it. In one way, it is the logical consequence and logical evolution of the way that biology has been going for 150 years. As we improve the tools that we have, both to understand how life works, but also how to modify things like DNA, we move towards um, the modification and away from just the description. Synthetic biology is also a sort of an engineering view of how biology might one day be. And so it's, it's both sort of a progression from biology and a departure from it. And the folks that would call themselves synthetic biologists, a lot of them came from the world of engineering in the 1990s and the 2000s. They were looking for new challenges, I think in part because the super colliding superconductor had just been canceled. And so a lot of the great physics problems and engineering problems that would have been explored with that were no longer available. So a lot of them decided to shift over to biology, which they detected to be an, an area of sort of frontier, cool, interesting science. And as they came into biology, they brought with them the ethos of engineering, which involves, among other things, the idea that you shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel every single time you do an experiment. Uh, one of the common critiques, and I don't think it's entirely fair, but one of the common critiques of early synthetic biologists was that if you go into a biologist's laboratory, a traditional biologist's laboratory, if there is such thing as a traditional biologist, what you'll see is that they're pouring gels and they're making their own parts and they have to do all this stuff before they can even do an experiment. Whereas in engineering, what you typically do is you you go to the, um, you know, the store, the storeroom 
room and you get screws that have already been made and you get a tool that you can use to put the screws into something. And you use a whole bunch of standardized parts. And because you use standardized parts that already exist, you can simply build the thing you want to build right away. You don't have to wait to make all the parts before you build it. So they decided that they wanted to establish a set of standardized parts. And in the case of synthetic biology, one of the primary types of, of uh, standardized parts is little bits of DNA. And there is actually something called the registry of standardized biological parts, which began, I believe, as a freezer sitting in one of the infinite corridors at MIT, uh, possibly even unlocked <laughs> with biological samples inside. And now is a much more sophisticated, much better governed operation that um, catalogs and um, tests and verifies the accuracy of information about, I think, more than 30,000 different snippets of DNA. And these snippets of DNA, at least technically, are supposed to have standardized connection points so that with very little fiddling, you can take a few parts and essentially click them together in a molecular way and build something fairly quickly and build something whose function you can predict based on the structure that you've used to build it from. So the, what this has evolved into is a series of laboratories around the world that do really sophisticated um, building and rebuilding of natural systems using standardized pieces of DNA and, and other standardized molecules. But in addition to that, there's been a lot of community outreach. And in fact, there is an Olympics that happens every year. It's called the iGEM. And the title is just marvelous. The title is the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition or Jamboree. I think it's officially a jamboree because I think um, that sounds friendly and safe. But what you have is teams from all over the world, teams of undergraduates and increasingly community laboratories, high school students who have access to this registry of standard biological parts, the 30,000 little bits of um, biological Lego. And they design new things. For example, they design screen which instead of being made of LEDs are made of bioluminescent yeast cells that respond to tiny electrical currents and buzz out little bits of color that can then be translated into screens, uh, biological screens that could depict TV shows. And you could have really small ones on your phone if you want. But if you wanted a bigger screen for the Super Bowl, you could just scoop a little bit of the yeast off of your screen from your phone, plate it out in a large glass plate, give it the right sort of nutrients. And by Super Bowl time, you have a 10 foot by 12 foot TV made up of bioluminescent yeast. And then when you're done with that, you just scrape them off and use them for something else. Um, so this Olympics event happens every year and it's just phenomenal. It's just incredible. I've been to a couple of them. Teams wear t-shirts. They come from uh, many different countries and they produce the most amazing inventions you can imagine. And when I say inventions, what I mean is living organisms that, new, that do new things. Um, so that's sort of practically speaking what people are doing from you know, these professional laboratories that are based at universities to these community laboratories, high school students and undergraduates who compete in the iGEM. And then there's also a group of people that work on governance of this field. I'm sure that your minds are already racing to misuses and they should because potentially the power of this technology can be used for good things and bad things. And the FBI is well aware of the synthetic biology community. And in fact, for a period of years, I'm not sure it's still true now, but a period of years, they embedded at least one FBI um, officer in the community and he would introduce himself at meetings and say, hey, I'm, I'm Larry, the FBI guy. I'm just here to watch and to learn. But the signal was that people should do good with this stuff and not do bad things. Um, so there's, there's a series of different components to synthetic biology from governance to community participation to the professional laboratories. But it's really taken
taken off as a field and the proof of concept of new biological inventions has accelerated and accelerated and, and it's really become the future of biology. That is really exciting in terms of some of these applications. I'm going to loop back around if we have time to some of the worries about negative applications. I actually brought some of them up to David Graywall when I was commenting on a paper he did with respect to the BioBricks Foundation. Uh, but what I would love for you to describe, Andrew, at this point is our legal policy side. You know, is this a ser an area where we are really worried about a patent thicket quickly developing that would impede innovation or have measures been taken and communities and norms and laws been built to help ensure that the basic technology is available for lots of folks to do follow-on innovation like those yeast screens that you described? One of the great things about this community of people is that from the very beginning, they've been focused on governance as much as on science and responsible use of the science. I really applaud the entire community and the leaders of the community for focusing on that so early, rather than waiting until people complained and worried to deal with those concerns. Um, specifically, the BioBricks Foundation decided fairly early on that it needed to have a formal governance structure for giving out these little BioBrick parts and also accepting new BioBrick parts into the registry. So as a consequence, what they did was they, they held a couple of sort of policy meetings, tried to identify who might be helpful in visualizing and, and conceiving of a legal framework that would be at the same time friendly, but also effective. And um, I, among a variety of other people who did far more than I did, I, I was enlisted in some of the early meetings and contributed some of the ideas that went into what's called now the BioBrick Public Agreement. Um, and just to clarify, um, most of the work was done by other people, including people like Lee Cruz, who's a practicing attorney that I used to work with at my law firm, and um, Drew Endy and, and David Graywall, and a number of other people, this BioBrick public agreement was sort of conceived of as a little bit of a constitution for the field. Uh, not something that would cover every single contingency, but instead a set of broad and maybe even grand ideas of what the field might be able to achieve and limits that the users might place on themselves. Limits of how to use the technology, how not to misuse it. And I think that these agreements, the, the BioBrick public agreement altogether, these, these various contracts that people now look at and, and agree to when they give parts and take parts from the registry, I think that they help to, um, let's say, to canalize or focus the minds of users on what acceptable use should be. There's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm that goes into synthetic biology, e even today. I mean, in fact, I was um, in Cambridge last week for a meeting at Harvard Business School, just an innovation meeting, and there's a guy there, a fantastic guy named David Kong, who's at the Media Lab, and he actually has his PhD in synthetic biology. Well, David came up to me after the first day of the meetings and uh, he knew that I was interested in synthetic biology. He said, you got to come with me. And he drove me to this cool building in Cambridge where he runs a community synthetic biology laboratory. And he and a guy named George Church who's at the Broad Institute, um, teach a class that I think is called something like how to build almost everything. Um, and they teach this to whoever wants online. But the idea is to get people to not just focus on the uh, on being enthusiastic about the technology, but to think about good uses of it and to think about how they might um, head off at the pass bad uses and detect bad users and um, make sure that the community is constantly monitoring itself in a responsible way so that the 
FBI does not have to do anything other than have, you know, Officer Larry watch it. Um, you can imagine that very quickly this field, uh, given the increases in its technical in, in its technical achievements, could imagine that very quickly it could spin out of control from a public relations perspective, and the public could demand governance of uh, draconian nature. You know, limit the availability of parts of DNA, limit the usage of of methods in a laboratory. Um, instead of that, from the very beginning, the people involved in this field have tried to project a very real responsible view of how to use this technology so that government did not have to step in and uh, and use heavy-handed tactics to govern them. But instead, they would be good citizens, they would promote the technology, they would share the benefits with society, and they'd make sure nobody got hurt. So Andrew, could you help me and maybe the listeners a little bit in tying this sort of commons, anti-commons discussion in with some of the legal literature. And I'm thinking particularly of the innovation law beyond IP literature. I mean, you you in this paper talk about prizes and some of these these other approaches. And I wonder if you could try and tie that together a little bit for us. Sure, I'll be happy to try. It, it might be it might be useful for me to just briefly talk about what I found in this uh, in this chapter, the paper that we're talking about, if if that's okay. Um, the paper that I'm thinking of is called, or the chapter is called, "Better to Give Than to Receive: An Uncommon Commons in Synthetic Biology." And all I did for this study was look at the data that had actually been um, gathered together by an interested community member. Um, the information about who takes BioBrick Lego parts from the registry, from the, the Registry of Standard Biological Parts, and who contributes back to the registry. The original ethos of iGEM included the proposition that in order for the registry to grow, the, the common sort of patrimony of, of standardized biological parts, it should grow because the community should experiment, make new parts, and then give them back. But there's always skepticism, especially in, in the economics literature, about people doing things for free. People giving things back. Instead, really what you ought to have is, um, is is free riders. According to at least one view of economics, you, you ought to have people taking all kinds of parts from the registry, using them, and then not giving their own innovations back. So I thought it would be fun to see whether this actually happened in the context of iGEM. So I got the data and um, I was able to divide the data into different functional types of, of um, DNA. So th there's a variety of different things that you can do with DNA. Uh, I broadly divided them into therapeutics, diagnostics, preventatives, and then sort of general applications, and actually then um, subdivided it into other categories. But what I found is that, and I was quite astonished myself, is that based on the data from 2009 to 2013, um, people had certainly taken parts from the registry to use, but the number of parts, new parts, that they had contributed back to the registry dwarfed, in some years absolutely dwarfed, the number of parts that had been been taken from the registry. And I concluded from this that people really were contributing back and that that was something they enjoyed doing, something they really wanted to do, or at least were motivated somehow to give back. And there are not enforcers who go around forcing people to give their, their new parts back to the registry. And I thought this was quite an interesting counterpoint to the traditional economic view that if things are free, if it's a commons, you're going to get a tragedy and that people are just going to free ride on other people's efforts. Quite the opposite, I found that um, there were all kinds of free rides freely being given by 
by people who are contributing parts back. So placing it within the, I, I, I feel like I might have strayed from what you wanted me to, to answer. Well, no, that's not a problem. I mean, I think that, you know, it is such an interesting journey. And, you know, it's something too, because we've had a lot of podcasts on pharmaceutical innovation and research. Um, and by the way, I have to, I, I sometimes do these mix-ups. We we discussed some of George Contreras' work in a podcast with Jake Shirkow, but it was Jake that we talked to. It wasn't George. We, we, he's on our list. <laughs> to invite. Well, but Jake I, and George are both fantastic. So, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, so I wanted to be sure to get that, that erratum corrected. But one of the things that, you know, we think a lot about is it seems like a lot of the enthusiasm over BioBricks Foundation and over the sort of comments that you're describing, Andrew, it's part of a much broader uh, movement, like the access to knowledge movement and the innovation beyond IP uh, concerns that Nick just raised, that literature, that really wants to see more involvement of nonprofits, of ordinary citizens, of, say, citizen science in these areas. And do you think that we are on the cusp of an era where a lot of nonprofit or non-unconventional partnerships may be able to really fundamentally contribute to, say, pharmaceuticals? or other areas of innovation? Or do you think this is something where we are, there's still years, decades uh, to wait until the commercial side of, say, an area like pharmaceuticals really has to worry about being disrupted by nonprofits and citizen science? Well, I certainly hope that we're on the cusp of it. There's tremendous activity that's moving in exactly that direction. Um, I don't think we've reached the point where a medicine has been made available by the community yet. But we're exploring all kinds of areas of science that traditional laboratories simply don't have the time, the manpower, or the woman power to explore. And this enthusiasm that the community has shown towards, for example, synthetic biology. I mean, the, the iGEM competitions have grown exponentially. And, and now there's just you know, there's an unbelievable number of people all around the world doing this work. There's this little community laboratory that David Kong runs in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where you know people from all walks of life come and fiddle with pretty sophisticated scientific concepts and equipment and, and run, you know, fundamental experiments. They, they even do a little bit of CRISPR work, um, gene editing, which you probably covered in one of your other podcasts. I think that you want to encourage democratization of a technology like this for a couple of reasons. One is the costs have collapsed. The costs of doing biology have really collapsed. One of the first sort of artificial collapses was in the recession uh, 10 years ago. A lot of biotech companies went bankrupt and a lot of their equipment was sold at auction. And so people who were interested in doing biotechnology in their houses, they could literally go and buy an expensive centrifuge for a fraction of what it had been bought uh, bought for by the company that used to own it. That, I think, kind of um, sent a pulse of activity into, into the hands of the community. Um, then there's the official promoters of synthetic biology, the Biobricks Foundation, the iGEM competition, etc. They've done a phenomenal job of, of expanding consciousness about responsible synthetic biology and encouraged a lot of people to join community laboratories. The community laboratories is another prong of this. There are a variety of, of really wonderful laboratories that have grown up, not just in cities like San Francisco and Boston, but, but actually all over the country now and all over the world. Little DIY bio operations, some of them in container crates, some of them in donated space that biotechs give. There's even one, my favorite one, the one in um, the, the Bay Area. A, a friend of mine helped to run it for a while called BioCurious. Just a fabulous name. And bio, I don't know if you've heard of that before, but... Um, no, no, it's great. 
really wonderful operations. And these are sprouting up all over the place because the costs are going down. The accessibility of information is going up. And I don't want to minimize the value of formal scientific information as published in Cell, Nature, and Science. They are phenomenal journals. I subscribe to two out of those three. I try and read them week after week because that's very high quality information. But you can't, you can't minimize the effect of YouTube videos that explain things like gene editing. There are so many high quality ways of learning about biology and learning practical biological techniques. You can learn how to gene edit on about a hundred YouTube videos. I'm sure some are better than others, but the quality of information that is accessible to anybody with an internet link and a decent screen makes that information accessible to orders of magnitude more people than have a white lab coat and key card access to a you know, well-funded laboratory. And I think that this is a really good thing when it comes to medical innovation. I think we've seen the limits in a number of ways of what the formal commercial pharmaceutical industry can deliver. And I think that um, that needs to continue. The, the, the innovation delivered by those companies needs to continue. The, the much more nimble, much more diverse array of biotech startups has pointed out some of the limitations of the gigantic pharmaceutical companies, although they're often snapped up by the pharmaceutical companies. But below that level, you now have a new, even wider base of people who are participating in biological innovation. Community laboratories, the iGEM, people doing work at home. There's, there's all kinds of great things you can do at home. Very few of these things are going to result in Nobel Prizes or um, you know drugs that, that receive FDA approval, but some of them will. And there's so many people engaged in this activity that inevitably some of what they discover will be important and will be honed until it's at the point where it's ready to, to, um, to reach the product stage. And I sort of, um, I, I point a little bit here to work that I've done with Eric von Hippel. And when I say work that I've done with Eric von Hippel, what I really mean is learning from Eric von Hippel um, about the democratizing of innovation. Um, Eric's become one of my closest colleagues. And he and I first started talking about synthetic biology and a little bit of the experimental stuff that I do. But synthetic biology and democratizing biology and democratizing um, medical innovation is something that, that he and I talk a lot about. It's in fact what the meeting was last week at HPS. We had a whole meeting on, on basically the democratization of patient innovation. So innovation from patients rather than from formal institutions. I see a huge value in, in embracing activity by as many people as possible who are interested in curing disease and coming up with drugs and coming up with, with new methods of biology because empirically there are orders of magnitude more of those people who could potentially come up with insights than there are R&D staff in Pfizer and Merck and all of the biotech and pharmaceutical companies. Um, again, not all of the breakthroughs in biology and medicine are going to come from the community and community laboratories, but some of it will. And the more popular this activity becomes, the more likely that information will start to filter up from the grassroots and inform the decisions and inform the cures and discoveries that the pharmaceutical and biotech industry is making. Open source, I know it's probably sort of a strained analogy, but open source has been a phenomenal source of innovation for the computer industry. Despite all of the guffaws that the computer industry and the software industry initially gave towards open source, open source is now the feedstock for a lot of the software innovations that come out. And a lot of open source is just regular folks who are posting their code to GitHub. Well, a similar thing is happening in synthetic biology. And regular folks are starting to post their solutions to biological problems and put things together like different bio bricks into new combinations that result in new products, new applications, new functionality 
This information, I think, will act as feedstock for the biotech and the pharmaceutical industries, as well as medical innovation in general, just as open source has uh, become the dominant feedstock for the software industry. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Torrance, who you can find on Twitter at LexVivo, L-E-X-V-I-V-O. Great fun, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. This was really wonderful fun. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank, this week is... At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. And remember, Frank has much better Facebook friends than I do. (laughs) 